I'm just going to do a, a bit of a straw poll this morning uh, as we get into the book of Titus. As a church, we value the Word of God highly, and it's our desire to, to teach through the Word of God, not from just an intellectual basis, but so we can put rubber on the road. So you and I as individuals can stand strong in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and make a difference in this world. So that's why we do it. That's why we spend time each Sunday pouring over God's word. That's why we, during our small groups uh, midweek, delve a little deeper into God's word so that through his spirit, we can walk the path together and have the encouragement of becoming more like Christ. But I want to pose a question to you this morning, or actually a straw poll, as I said. How many people in this room have an email address? Show of hands. Wow, that's almost 100%. How many have a phone by which you can receive SMS messages or text messages? That's a fairly high portion. How many of you have your own Facebook account? How many of you share other people's Facebook accounts? Illegal. (laughs) Only joking. Uh, How many of you have your own Twitter account? Oh, there's a few out there. Instagram? Wow. Who is a self-blogger? I said blogger. Ah, we've got some bloggers. Okay. I'm a self-blogger as well. It's okay. It's interesting, isn't it, how communication has changed. Just that straw poll there, you can see communication has changed immensely in today's world. You know, with the use and the power of a finger. You can uh, transfer information, you can uh, delete information, you can save it. Next question, how many of you in the last three months have received a personal handwritten letter? Ooh, okay. How many of you in the last three months have sent a personal handwritten letter? Great snail mail is alive and well. How many of you in the last three months have received a love letter? <laughs> Just particularly looking at this section of the congregation. Okay, romance is not alive and well in Canterbury Gardens. (laughs) The question for you, and I guess here, is how many in this congregation have received a love letter? Yes. When 24 years ago, when Julie and I were romancing one another, that was one of the primary forms of communication was to actually, outside ringing them or calling somebody on a landline, you would maybe write a letter. What was the first thing you did when you received that letter? You'd smell it. 
You see, if it's well perfumed, you would open it up and you would uh, look at the first line. Would you give that a, a fleeting glance, that first line? No, you'd want sort of some form of indication of what the, the person thought of you. You would even probably look between the lines in some self-centered way. Because it just might say, Dear Nath. And I would think in my mind, Is that the, my dearest Nath? Um, my sole companion, dearest Nath? Is that um, my one and only lover of my life, Nath? You get the picture, don't you? You pour over these introductions, especially if you're in communication with someone you love. And it's the same with electronic communication today. I'm sure if you receive a love text, <laughs> it's not quite so romantic, is it? What did you receive? Like, oh, I got a love text. <laughs> it's not quite like a love letter, is it? But you pour over the words, you read between the words, you read between the lines, you desire a affirmation of communication that this person loves you. A lot can be said in the first line of a letter. And that's the same with God's word. And as we open Titus this morning, we're going to spend some time, we're going to spend the whole morning looking at the opening sentence. The opening sentence of four verses, which communicates some deep, theological meaning in the life of Titus to his recipient, in the life of Paul to his recipient Titus. And we do well not to skip over introductory remarks in any of the letters of the New Testament. They're important. They set up what's going to follow they set up thinking, they set up relationship, they set up, in this case, theology. So if you would like, could you turn to Titus? If you haven't got Bibles, please help yourself over here to the, the side. We're also going to put the verses up on, on the screen. But just to give you some historical background before we read these verses. Titus is part of three letters Paul wrote. First and second Timothy and Titus. He wrote these letters all about the, the same time, around AD 63 to 66. You know, Paul had likely left Titus in Crete, as we'll discover. Crete was an island in the Mediterranean, primarily to finish the task of organizing and instructing the churches there. After leaving him in Crete, it's possible that Paul proceeded with Timothy to Ephesus. And when he arrived in Ephesus, he found this uh, church uh, in a spiritual shambles. So Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, and then he proceeded to Macedonia. When he arrived in Macedonia, he wrote back to Timothy in Ephesus and uh, gave him instructions and 
probably emphasised the oral traditions or the oral statements that he had made previously. And as he wrote First Timothy, it's likely he reflected on Titus back in Crete and uh, decided to write a personal letter to Titus also. See, Timothy and Titus were fellow workers with Paul. For what we can get from the New Testament, both these men were likely converts from Paul's preaching. And they had a call on their lives also to, to work in the ministry. So Paul, late in his life, somewhere after his first imprisonment, when he gets released from prison in Rome, we read that in sort of Acts 27, 28, and before his second imprisonment, he writes 1 Timothy and Titus. And during his second imprisonment, he writes 2 Timothy. And they're deeply personal letters. And they're probably there so he could convey the oral instructions he'd already given personally to both these men. So that's sort of the setting that we have here. And they're an interesting type letter because you would say that these letters are a type of what we call a mandate letter. See, in Greek and Roman times, what, what you'd do is there was so much toing and froing of political power across provinces and cities and towns. What generally would happen, the central political authority, once a, a power change had occurred and uh, a new governor was put in place, then the ruling body would uh, write a letter. Write a letter to the province and, and it would be a mandate letter. And it would outline the rules uh, for the newly appointed delegates and it would formally address the individual who was now in place of governing that area. But the letter was also, uh, its purpose was to not just address individuals but to have a broader readership. And that very much is the style of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Paul uses his culture of the day to communicate with, if you like, these newly appointed pastors in these cities in a deeply personal way, but with the philosophy that, hey, I want the broader church body to hear. It's an open letter, but with deep personal views. So let's read the first four verses. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifest in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. By all accounts, a pretty standard greeting. If you read through all of Paul's letters, you'll, you'll get a similar framework for his greeting. 
we first see Paul identify who he is. He uses two terms to identify who he is. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention to the first term he uses. Servant of God. Now, it's probably in our English, there's not a great translation of this word, lulos. And I think historically it's that way because when the Bible was first transmitted to English, we had a large part of the world wrestling with the issue of slavery. So to avoid any sort of confrontation with that, we translate doulos as servant. If you look at the historical content of the word, it always means slave. Always means slave, has always meant slave, and should always mean slave. So what Paul does here, he uses the secular word for slave, which was very common in the time of, of the Roman Empire, because if you weren't a Roman, you were intrinsically a slave. Because you'd been a conquered people and, and that was now your station in life. And in Roman times, a slave could be very highly esteemed. It wasn't a view of what we have of slavery from our 21st century. For instance, you could be a lawyer, an accountant, a highly professional person and still be a slave and designated that way because you weren't Roman. So what Paul does here is he identifies himself as a slave of Christ. A slave of God, sorry. He uses it in saying, as a Christian, I am a slave of God. Even though I'm free in Christ. And we've just gone through this wonderful uh, book of Galatians where we talk about being set free and having the freedom in Christ through his grace. And uh, here, he says, yes, I am free in Christ, but I'm a slave to God. My allegiance, my bondage is to God. In essence, he is saying, body, soul, and spirit, I'm owned by God. Now, folks, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, body, soul, and spirit, you're owned by God. We are slaves of the King of Kings. He then goes on and uses the second title for himself to identify himself. And just remember the audience in which he's writing. He, he's writing personally to Titus. Now, would Titus know that he was a slave of God? Absolutely. He co-ministered with them. Would Titus have known that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But remember, this type of mandate letter was going not just to Titus, it was going to be read at a broader level. So Paul uses the title Apostle to indicate his role and authority in which he writes to Titus. 
This is a term that's used throughout the New Testament for a very select few. So we're just going to do a little bit of work on what does it mean to be apostle? Can you and I be an apostle today? Or is this a particular office for this time and space? When you start thinking about uh, apostle, we, as we read in Galatians, I'll just remind you, Galatians 1, you know, probably eight, nine weeks ago, uh, that Paul stated in Galatians 1, 1, what? That he was an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. So he's saying, my apostleship is directly from Jesus. So to be an apostle, it's directly ordained by Jesus. Now, later in Galatians um, 17, uh, he said this, um, Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and returned with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And he's building this case that his apostleship, there are other apostles, but he also was an apostle because he was directly appointed by Jesus. You know, his thing on the road to Damascus when he became saved, read that in Acts, where Jesus revealed himself to him, Paul, Paul, who are you persecuting? You, Lord? That was the commission of his apostleship. A second aspect of being an apostle is being an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians, and just read this because this is very much about Paul and, and just uh, his right to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse um, 3, we'll start and go to verse 9. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appointed uh, to Cephas then to the twelve, or he appeared, sorry, to Cephas and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul did not see the resurrection of Christ like the 12 disciples. He saw it as one, as he says, born out of time. Jesus revealed this to him on the road to Damascus. I just love his heart when I see this, he said. You know, I was so unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I hated the church. He hated the church with a passion. And you know what? In God's grace, he still called him. God's, in God's grace, he turned the man around to become one of the greatest men of faith we have in the New Testament. 
So to be an apostle, you need to be directly appointed by Jesus. You need to have an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You need to be a foundation stone of the church, along with the prophets, as a bearer of the gospel and of God's revelation. You could read that in Ephesians chapter 2, if you like. And also an apostle, there's strong indication here that an apostle was first in leadership and authority in the church. Based on these scriptures, I would contend that the office of apostle was for a select few in the first century. And for Paul, this office also held another responsibility is to go to preach to the Gentiles. As we have seen in this letter and through other letters. So Paul, he's introduced himself. I'm a slave of God. And I have a divine appointment and right to be called an apostle. A foundation member of the church. Someone who's seen the resurrected Christ directly appointed by Jesus to preach to the Gentiles. That's a pretty impressive introductory statement, isn't it? But you know what? You and I have the same impressive introductory statement. You put your faith and trust in Christ, you are called a child of God. You have an inheritance which is beyond this world. You have a hope which is just magnificent as we're going to discuss and discover. You are a slave of Christ. All wonderful, wonderful blessings. So I encourage you, encourage you this week as you think about your position in Christ. Be bold in that. Really think through the process of who you are in Christ. If you really want to mull on that, look at the whole book of Ephesians and and look through the book of Ephesians and, and number how many times it says in Christ. In Christ this, in Christ that, and it will blow you away. I'm not going to tell you how many times. You can figure it out yourself. But it gives you great hope and encouragement. We are all servants of God. We're not all apostles, a select few. But we are all servants of the King. So why did Paul write this? Let's look at his purpose. Let's look at the next uh, phrase. I write this for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Paul's writing a letter of encouragement primarily. Even though he's encouraging Titus, he wants to encourage the whole community. He used a very descriptive term here which often gets really bad press amongst us. 
Paul uses the descriptive term uh, and calls the attention to God's activity in human salvation, and the term he uses here is election, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, let's face it, this thing on election mystifies us. If you've been around the church a little while, not too long, sooner or later you're going to get into discussion about this, rightfully or wrongfully. And I just want to help today just develop a good biblical theology of what election is. What does the Bible say about it? And what does it actually mean? You know, because this doctrine contains mysteries for human understanding. Folks, we're not God. God is God. God is beyond time and space. His, his understanding and his intellect is infathomable and yet we are constrained by ourselves so just four things I want to make mention of on this and then we'll move further through the text overall I think the Doctrine of election is biblically emphasized as a central part of God's dealing with his people. Okay? Say that again. It's evidence with God's dealing with his people. You could look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 9. It talks about the way God chose a nation. He chose Israel. Let's just read that, just... So you can remember it. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people from his, uh, for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God chose Israel because of a promise he made to Abraham. And as we'll read further down, God does not lie and has to be faithful to his promise. You could read in Colossians chapter 3, God's choice of the church. Colossians 3. Verses 11 and 12. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Jesus' own teaching reflects election. Read John 6, 37 to 44. And other New Testament writers also allude to it. Look at Acts 13, 48. Look at 1 Peter 1. To five. Look at Revelation. So you have Peter, you have John, and you have Luke, all testifying to it. And consistently, Paul, through his letters, 
shows that God is the source, initiator, implementer, and guarantor of salvation. Just spend some time in Ephesians chapter 1. These things will, will become evident. But you know what? It still divides us. This whole thing about election divides us. So we need to biblically wrestle with it. There's no point to ignore it or just cast it out and say, I just don't want to know about it, I want to reject it, or, or the likes. Because, you know, in our own back of our minds, we say, if God elects, then does that mean also he condemns to hell? We have that thinking. That's a logical argument, but it's not a biblical argument. Because when it comes to the Bible, you won't see that. Because you have the counterside, you have the mystery. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes will not perish. So you have the counter side of this mystery. Yes, God knows all, but yes, there is a balance here. You know, as theologians, as people who wrestle with the Bible, we must stop where the Bible text stops. We must look at the Bible for what it is. We must put it in context. And if it doesn't say the next thing, then stop. Even if the issues appear unresolved, we do not have to resolve them here. We need to learn to live in tension of these great truths. That God is God and he knows and he is intimately involved in the salvation of man. And yet, the great truth is that as a human being, we have thoughts, we have will, we have choice. I don't know how that works. But we've got to live in the tension. Because God is God and he's sovereign. I'd rather fall on the sovereignty and mercy of God on this issue than on my own human inability to reason. But one thing that I love about the doctrine of election, and this is the application, I think, in many ways, what I've just said, Paul said in Romans. He just, Romans chapter 11. Just gave this wonderful doxology, if you like, 9, 10, 11 about what will happen with Israel. And the whole issue of election came up. And then his answer to it in verse 33 is this. Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to a gift to him that he might be repaid? So the great apostle Paul lived in this tension. He didn't understand it and he just threw it over. 
How unsearchable are God's ways? Which is wonderful. But going back to the point, election provides security. Why? Because God's activity in the heart of salvation shows the will and purposes of God. If God is involved in salvation, then my position in Christ is so secure, it's not something that can be lost. And that's why I think he, he writes to Titus and to the broader community saying, know this as a fact. You are elect of God and you are secure in him. Hold on to that. You may have different aspects of political and, and all sorts of pressure upon you. But know that you are secure. When we reflect on salvation, we reflect on God's unconditional love, grace, and mercy. Even though the mystery of our salvation is difficult to grasp with our finite minds, when we see God's love, grace, and mercy demonstrated, what's the result? It provides great comfort. It gives us a secure heart that is ready for worship. For all God has done, I give all that I have in worship and obedience to his word. Okay, moving right along. And why, or what is the other purpose for the faith of God's elect is that the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness is revealed. The saving faith will open your eyes to the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So it's saying if you're in Christ, you need to grow and develop this knowledge of truth which is going to lead you down the path of godliness. How do you cultivate a knowledge of truth? We learn that from Galatians. It's a transformation by the Spirit of God in your life to move you from being self-centered and self-controlled to being God-centered and God-controlled. This only happens by the gift of the Holy Spirit. It develops the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It's fostered by, also here he's saying, this is fostered by developing the knowledge of the truth. What is that? It's knowing more and more about Christ, his work, and his redemption. So how do you do that in your own life? How do you develop that knowledge of truth which leads to godliness? Any answers? To know the truth, you need to apply the truth. You need to see the source of the truth, which is in the Word of God. To know more about the truth, you need to read more about the truth. You need to apply what you read through the power of the Holy Spirit, which comes from the Word of God. is to take your 
biblical worldview and make that the preeminent one over the humanistic worldview. It's to live and follow Christ based on the principles in his word. That's how you develop a knowledge of truth. This is the primary purpose of Titus. I'm not going to look at verses 2, 3 and 4 today. I would love to, but I'm not going to. I want to stop right here and just let us think through this. As we unfold Titus over the next uh, five weeks, Paul is going to instruct the faithful. Here he calls them God's elite. And he's going to instruct them and say, okay, how are you growing? How are you developing in the knowledge of truth? And what does that look like in your day-to-day life? How is grace going to impact your relationships with the leaders of your church? How is grace going to impact your relationship with one another, with older women, younger women, employers, employers? How is grace going to impact on your knowledge of the truth, impact your witness in the world? This is a foundational clause. And he will explode it as we go through these chapters. So my challenge to you here and now is, as God's elect, you know Christ and are serving him. What knowledge, what truth proposition is going to work for you that's going to move you towards godliness on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis? If you don't know God, if you're sitting here and don't know the power of forgiven sin, in your life. You don't know that you have security in the arms of Jesus. I implore you, let's walk together. Let's try and understand who Jesus is and what that means. That also is going to come through here in this book. Because Jesus is the only way, truth and life. Paul is saying exactly the same thing here. He is the only way, truth and life. That is the knowledge and the truth. And that's going to and should shape your walk for him.